This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hey everybody, I'm Samson Folk. This is the Rapcast. Whether you're listening on the podcast channel or the YouTube channel, welcome. This is another episode of Outside Looking In where I talk to somebody who covers a team, analyzes, or maybe they're just a fan, a very knowledgeable one, in different markets of different teams so that you can learn about all the teams in the NBA during this series. But additionally, we can kind of get a consensus on how people view the Raptors by gauging what they believe what they think, all that kind of stuff. Today's guest, one of my favorites, of course. If you listen to this podcast, you've heard me say that this person does some of the best work, if not the best, covering a team in the NBA. As far as, honestly, somebody who's going to know X's and O's, play styles, how those things mesh, and then to tumble it all together in like this beautiful writing, Caitlin Cooper of Indy Cornrows. She's also been on the 538. Just tons of great work. She's here to talk about the Indiana Pacers. Caitlin, how are you? I'm doing well. That seems like a bit of an exaggeration, given that I'm not on camera right now. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually excited for this, because like I told you ahead of time, this is like part three of us doing podcasts together. In our first episode, when you were still doing Bouncing Around, we talked about the Indiana Raptors and the crossovers between those two teams that year and on our last podcast when we did loving basketball we talked about at the end the post and reimagining the post and i think all of this is going to come up today and the culmination of our journey of podcasting together we, we are always future facing it appears uh, discussing things that will come up later we I don't see know, where I'm... the hockey puck is going <laughs> sure right and so that's one of the interesting things is that there you you Man, of all the people to do it, you were the perfect person to do it. But the you had like a series of covering the Pacers after Nate Bjorkren got hired as the head coach called the Indiana Raptors. And you had a little trademark when you discussed it. It's because you were picking out the playbook similarities that had transitioned from the Raptors to the Pacers along with Bjorkren. And now that that doesn't exist. I, maybe some stuff stuck around. Maybe Carlisle liked seeing something. I'm sure you'll let me know. But now these teams are presumably heading into this next season quite different. The first thing I'd ask you, obviously, is like, what are your flashbulb thoughts on the Raptors when you step out and you say, what is this team? What are a couple of things that come to mind? So it's going to be nerd stuff. Like prepare mm -hmm. yourself. So it's just it's just when you look at the numbers, when you pull up, you know, PBP stats, you pull up any advanced analytics and you see that this team somehow manages to be in the top 10 of both offensive rebounding rate and transition defense. That doesn't make sense. They barely take any threes after lots of years of taking lots of threes. They do not have a good half-court offense. They run tons of isolations despite being not very efficient in isolation. Um, and then they hold opponents to the lowest corner three-point frequency in the NBA. And if you just looked at those numbers, you would think to yourself, none of this makes sense. And then you would see the win total and you'd be like, now this really doesn't make sense. So I think that my like 20,000 foot view of the Raptors is kind of my enduring question. You know, is the roster dictating that identity or do they believe so much in that identity that it dictates how they shape the roster? And I think we're going to talk about that as the podcast goes on. That's the question. I, I basically, I come up to this question. I nudge myself up to it in almost every piece I write. And it's, it's not something I addressed fully in the, the piece I wrote about the Raptors defense, how they innovate, is there innovation from this point on? But it's like, are the Raptors building this way out of necessity? Because they think this is a market efficiency. 
we're going to try and make a team that looks like this because it's easier to get these types of players and develop these skills. And we think that there's a ceiling that exists around a championship at some point. Or are they doing it because they're like, we've seen all the other forms of basketball. This is the best one once we get to the the apex of it. I I don't know Bobby Webster. He's not in my phone. Neither is Masai. I can't call him up and ask. And if I did, they probably wouldn't tell me. What do you think? I mean, I think sometimes when you look, which we'll get into some of it at times, like I think they clearly want to win the possession more. I mean, you mentioned yeah. that in your piece today, but that's definitely a thing. And I think that they are, especially with some of their spacing on plays, you can tell that they're prioritizing offensive rebounding over their spacing of players because they don't have, you know, the shooting. So that to me feels like, and the lower three-point attempt rate feels like Nick Nurse adjusting to what personnel he has rather than so much, you know, sticking to his own ideology, I guess is the way that I would look at it. But then, you know, when we talk about the corner three-point frequency, that's really fascinating to me. And especially because like Miami's also kind of doing that and the Knicks kind of do it as well, but all three teams are doing it differently. And I do think that there is like a futuristic aspect to a degree to the way that the Raptors are doing this and that um, like a year ago, two years ago, when the Pacers were in summer league, I wrote this piece about playing higher in the gaps because there was a possession on an ATO where you could hear the coaching staff yell out to the two guys in the corner that they wanted them to play higher. So rather than just being even on the baseline, it was everybody in shift position. So instead of shrinking the floor, you know, into the blocks and the elbows, you're shrinking the floor into the court space as if everything shifted up. And like, that's not exactly the way that the Raptors do it, but the idea that you are creating higher pickup points so that somebody isn't completely collapsing the defense and they've kind of made the cognizant decision because of the link that they have that like, hey, you know, we don't have to react to the three-point line in the same way that other teams are. Maybe we can, you know, live with some of those corner threes as long as we can contest them to a degree. And, you know, that is an innovation. It's different, and I think it's fascinating. I like to see that type of stuff. It's especially this is another thing I brought up in the piece last time I'll address the piece, but Boucher, for example, a guy who his best, his best defensive sequences prior to this season were like these big swing help defense contests at the rim. And this past season, I don't think that was the case. It was by far his best defensive season, but it was just the overall usefulness of having a guy that long in motion all the time. And it's not even about being able to block a three-pointer, which he can, which he always, you know, he's near the league lead because he's just throwing himself at it. But it's that the Raptors are in motion all the time, that he tries to block a three-pointer, and maybe maybe the person puts the ball down. By the time he comes back into the defensive play, he's still active and hovering and finding the guy. And the Raptors feel like they're capitalizing on the kinetic energy just don't let it dwindle. Maintain it. Don't stop and start. Wheel around. Like, just be active. And in doing so, they open up gaps for cutters, uh, most famously Tyrese Maxey, as he torched the hell out of them in a playoff series until they adjusted and they completely reframed how they guarded Harden and Maxey, almost inverted the the way they guarded it. But it's it's really interesting because they're very clearly nowhere near perfecting it. But they they did put together some long stretches of it being good, most notably like, you know, Jackson Frank talked about it in his piece for Liberty Ballers, where he talked about uh, the Raptors and then also on the podcast we did where it's for a long stretch of play. They were the fourth in defensive rating. These are interesting things. And it's just like this absurd data collection that the Raptors are doing where it's like, how do we, you know, game basketball? How do we hack it? And probably the most notable one is the one that you brought up and the one that Joe Wolfond, he wrote a piece about it like three weeks into the season, just awesome talking about winning the possession battle and the absurdity of putting four guys below the free throw line to crash the offensive glass and then being good in, you know, transition defense. How do you achieve these things? And even when I sit down and try and like view it from a film perspective, not even in a points per possession in those play types perspective. I'm still at a little bit of a loss for words, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're almost having the inverse effect by putting those four guys along the free throw line. I mean, they run a lot of one, four flat plays, and then some of it just around the post-ups feels very 
intentionally unintentional, I guess is the way I would phrase it. But when you know that you, when you know that somebody's going to crash the glass, that kind of pulls the defender with them. So in reality, you would be thinking we're flattening ourselves out. We're not going to be able to get back. There's no floor balance here in transition. But if you know that you have to box people off the offensive glass, that's almost working as your transition defense. Yeah, that that's totally it, right? Is that, you know, you're squeezing them under their own basket because they're not, they value like, okay, you can go get the, you can go get the offensive rebound. You're doing it well enough that there has to be a response on our end. And I, I didn't really see a team that was like, you know what, we're just going to leak out. So that's, that is interesting. That is playing the game their way, dictating pace, dictating style. That's, that's a cool aspect of the game for sure. As far as, uh, the framework of the offense. I'm not sure if you feel the same way I do. I'd be curious to know, but I oftentimes think that they are limiting some of their on-ball players with being less than active on the weak side, um, not being that creative with how they occupy the defense away from the primary action, things like that. Is there anything you are looking for when you watch this team, like the the low-hanging fruit, how to improve this team offensively, just by design. I do. Um, going back, I'm going to drop one of my own pieces, but going back, if you go and read some of the Indiana Raptors pieces with Bjorkren, I find it really fascinating because there was a lot of times during that season where I'd be like, I wonder where else the Pacers could go with this. Teams have started to scout it. I wonder what other options the Raptors got out of it. And I'd start and go back to the year before and look at that film. And they had several pet plays between them that were post-up plays. To get like what you're saying, off ball cutting, to get shooters open, like one of them in particular, like if they had Marc Gasol in the post, Kyle Lowry would go set a top pin for Serge Ibaka to kind of orbit over into that space. And then Marc Gasol would pass it out for him to shoot a three. And then they had another ATO one where Pascal would be in the post. And like if you imagine a back screen in the lane, the guy coming off that back screen, you could either get them flashing down the lane or I think it was like Fred would come off of that pick and then get another pick just circle to Pascal as, as a three-point shot. And then the guy setting the screen, the screener pick could also slip to the basket. And the Pacers ran that for Sabonis. Both those plays they ran for Sabonis. They were like post-automatics. Like when he touches it, we're going to do X. And about a couple of weeks ago, I was doing an Eastern Conference tiers thing. And I was looking into stuff on the Raptors. And I was watching, I watched every static post-up that Pascal and Scotty Barnes had last year. I did not see any of that. So... I kind of wonder what the thought process for Nick Nurse on some of that is, because obviously they like to grab the ball off the rim and push it up the floor. And that's what you're seeing when they're getting into a lot of these post-ups. I don't know that I would necessarily call them post-ups as most as, as much as bully drives. And I like a bully drive for a lot of reasons, because you're not having to sap as much clock to get the ball into the post. And you're also not involving a post-entry pass. So it's a lot less dangerous play. And when you go like for the opposing defense, when you have to go from defending a help side and help side on a drive, a perimeter drive, and then the ball is behind you on the block and a team goes into post automatics, like that's pretty hard for the other three or four defenders to guard. So I kind of understand it from that standpoint. And what we just said about the spacing, I kind of understand too why at times they have so many guys below the free throw line. But at the same time, there's also this element of like, I think that Nick nurse wants to play read and react, but it's like, they're confusing the defense, but the defense doesn't know what they're doing, but they also don't always know what they're doing either. And it feels like there's lots of places, at least to me, where like, if I was going to say, okay, here's where you could grow this, like, you could flow into snug pick and roll right out of that bully drive into the corner. And then those other three defenders are having to cover a lot of ground there, or you could have, you know, Fred Van Fleet in the corner, come set an uphill screen for Pascal when he's like at the high post. And then you're getting an inverted pick and roll out of that post up, or maybe you're just setting, you know, a stagger out of the post up for Fred. So he's not doing so much in pick and roll where he's, you know, generating all that load. Does any of that resonate with you? I, absolutely. It's when we think about the the Fred and Pascal two man game, I always thought it was interesting because the bully drives are such a great point. It's one of the distinctions I made between when I was doing all of Scotty's possessions, I decided that a bully that the bullet the bully drive slash post up wouldn't be considered a post up. I would not log it as such. 
a post up was when he got it in the post and it was static. The same, the same distinction you made. And the bully drives, this goes back to the loving basketball conversation we had about inverting the post is like, you can start a defense out where they're, okay, we're going to guard something above the break and all that. And like you said, suddenly you invert the, the principles and stuff like that. And you start running actions, which the Raptors rarely do. You start running actions to kind of complicate that. When your principles are already up in the air and you have actions that dictate, okay, principles, what is the defensive response to this? And the players have to be on a string when players are dangerous, like Fred as an off-ball shooter, like a screener to, to get open in space. And Pascal is a guy to squirt through any crack in the defense, especially in like snug pick and rolls and stuff. Is the, the pickup point is closer to the basket. The footwork is more meaningful. The touch shots are more meaningful. It seems like that's a like a super hub that they could go to. I don't know what the defensive response would be over the course of a season, but it's pretty clear that there's something there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it because I'm sure like, I mean, I wrote a piece like February of that Bjorken season where I was like, okay, opponents are sitting on this stuff. Like some of these pet plays that they're running, teams are taking away the back screen or they're taking away the other stuff. So what are you going to get to next? I'm sure Nick Nurse is in part thinking that what they're doing is less predictable. Like, I think I DM'd yeah. you this, but like there was back in like the 2016 Warriors run, they would do this thing with, it was called like bunch action. So they would run like Curry and Andrew Bogut and Clay over in a corner when a team was switching and there was no set pattern to what they were doing. It was just, you know, we're basically buzzing around in a clump. One of us is going to come off and go to the basket. The other one's going to curl off and we're going to lift Andrew Bogut away so that his guy's at least having to do something. And they would just hope that one of the person people on a switch would mess up. And sometimes when you're watching these post-ups, there'll literally just be like three people bunched in a corner. And one of them will sneak along the baseline and almost get, you know, like a duck in in front of the post-up. And that's a really unique angle to be getting a cut from. Like typically, I think when we think of somebody at the block, you're looking for the 45 cutter. You're not looking for the guy from the baseline. So there is that element of like, you know, if you get into a playoff series, that's not a play you can scout. Like a team isn't expecting and knowing where you're going to come on that specific thing. So from that Nick Nurse angle, I get it. But can I throw a number at you? That yeah. I looked up? Okay. Love numbers. So I looked up on Synergy and between Scotty, Pascal and OG, I added up the points per possession on their passes out of the post. Um, you want to take a guess at what that number is below or over one point per possession? Out of the post? Yeah. Passes out of the post below or over. I know that OG that combined. I, I totaled them yeah, all combined. I'm trying to think under over. I'll go over. Correct. Yeah, over. Okay. And this is the thing. Like a lot of times we think of these of post-ups in general, and this is what we talked about on the Loving Basketball podcast. Like we think about post-ups being this inefficient thing, but when it's a pass out of the post, that can a lot of times be a team's one of a team's most efficient play types. So yeah, it was 1.05 points per possession when I tallied all three of them together. So just for frame of reference, that's better than anything else the Raptors did. They scored <laughs> 0.988 on spot ups, 0.877 on pick and roll, 0.8. Three four on ISOs, and this is the this is the big one, one point oh two on offensive rebounds. So if in part you're putting the four people below the free throw line because you want to get the putbacks out of these post ups, you're actually scoring more points per possession passing the ball out of the post than you're getting on the putback itself. So to me, and this is what the Raptors are not having a lot of shooting. Okay, so to me, if you if you're looking at that number, there's reason to expand on this and add secondary actions to what you're doing. It's, I mean, I will ask you, of those three guys, do you trust all three of them to be able to make passes out of the post? Or is there one that you trust more than the other two? Or I trust all three of them. Okay. OG, OG if he's getting swarmed, um, is very good, I think, at making interior reads. His long arms help him like shuttle close passes and stuff like that. But uh, some of the longer reads, if he's trying to go cross-court, I wouldn't really feel good about it. But especially Scotty and Pascal, I'd they'd make, I'd trust the reads for sure. Well, yeah, because I mean, I mean, some of the spacing you could even maintain, because if you have a guy in the dunker spot and you have a guy in the corner and you don't have tremendous shooting, you can have that dunker spot guy set a back screen for the guy in the corner, sneak underneath that. And I think I would trust, you know, Scotty or Pascal in particular to be able to hit that guy cutting under the basket. And I mean, that's pretty helpful with those two there in general, because a lot of times people are going to stay on the high side of that on the dunker spot 
and then you can come off either way. So that's, I mean, that's a very simple thing, but I mean, I've heard you talk about it many times, how low their pick and roll frequency is for the ball handler and how much of it Fred is carrying about 40%. So, you know, this is a way to initiate offense in a different way. And it's also a way to fold in those ball screens into a post-up action. Cause I, I think you can get to that and still have them be making passes because a lot of times, like just in my experience with Sabonis, when they would run like inverted stuff with him at the elbow, if, if, you know, Doug McDermott or somebody got top locked, Nate Bjorkren's, you know, automatic that he would go to is to have Doug go and set a screen at the elbow and basically just sandwich his guy there. Well, if Sabonis comes off that a lot of times when it's a big rumbling down the lane, you're going to bring an extra body to stop him. So then you can make a pass out of it that way too. So I think that my general takeaway for the lowest hanging fruit is make the post a vehicle for assists. I think that we were ahead of our time. When we recorded this in March, I think we were ahead of our time and what the Raptors needed to be doing. It's they have this like the Raptors, they particularly they run Fred as the the screener, uh, like the one horned, and then they'll bring like either Pascal or Scotty down and use the other as the passer to initiate. If it's a cut through, it's a cut through. If both guys trail the um trail the guy cutting down, then Fred pops out for a three. If they switch that action and the guard is now on one of Scotty or Pascal, like that's a post up. And so they, and they do love horns. Horns is super popular and not uber creative or anything, but there's, there's definitely stuff they can do to, to get in the post a little more often. That is a, that statistic is really great. You, you blew my mind with that statistic about the points per possession out of the post. Wow. That's, that's tremendous. I, I had to bring some type of number to the pot. I always, I always try to prepare something that is going to make me look more impressive than I actually am. I, I have a question: is is that half court or all all plays? It's half court. Wow! Is it like is? Do you know if Synergy tracks like the early work possessions? Like, say Pascal is like I don't know thirty eight feet from the basket, and he lobs it into one of Scotty in like this pseudo transition play where. Like they beat somebody up the floor and they pin or OG and they pin them under the basket. Do you do you know what they would kind of mark that as? I don't have access to Synergy's video. Yeah. They don't. Uh, I've I've petitioned. They don't want to let me have it, so I can't tell Synergy, you. Synergy, we're talking to you right now, okay? <laughs> Synergy, we're petitioning. Um, damn, that's that. I would be interested to see half court versus um or not like it if those factor into half court because i love their early work possessions i think it's yeah such an obvious wrinkle of playing the big guys and especially pascal obviously having a very good passing season uh especially like in tampa it was underrated how how many steps he was taking as a passer but fred isn't getting all these defensive rebounds is also a very poor post-entry passer so when these big guys grab it and they're like i got it go get the spot on the block. I love that because it's just this this old school bully ball. However, we should we should table this because part of the appeal of listening to this podcast with this guest is learning about the Pacers. So you wrote this just a fantastical piece about Tyrese Halliburton and jump passing. And there was, I scratched the surface of that topic on Minute Basketball. There was a floating was the topic we were doing that week. And I was talking about how like the Grizzlies had this weird timing thing where when John Morant jumped, they would cut where, you know, the jump freezes teams, freezes the defense, but the Grizzlies would enter motion. And I, I didn't, I like did like 800 words on not nearly what you did on Tyrese and the statistics watching every play, every jump pass incredible, but I just Tyrese, the Pacers very poorly formed question uh, thoughts on that team for anybody who who'd like to know yeah the Tyrese piece was pretty um time consuming like I went through that and just clipped all of the jump passes so like 250 and then I had to catalog them all and try to decide what was meaningful about that and yeah I think you hit the nail on the head I did not see that piece that you wrote about John Morant you're probably thinking my piece is derivative now <laughs> no no you 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 did so much more mine was like Huh, this is interesting. And you're like, I find that interesting. I'm going to find the answer. I post questions, you delivered answers. So yours is much, much better. Yeah. I mean, pro tip if you ever get an idea like this and you're thinking to yourself, that would be cool to track in the summer, 
when you rewatch the games in the morning, start clipping the jump passes every time you rewatch a game <laughs> instead of rewatching 26 in a row. But um, yeah, I mean, I think with Tyrese, when what my takeaway from that was is twofold that, you know, he's a very inclusive player and things that, you know, our youth coaches told us that we shouldn't do. And this isn't me, you know, ragging on the youth coaches, but um, you know, he's, he's turned it into a weapon. I think I, the way I worded was, it's not an excessive quirk. It's a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. So like when we were talking about, I have a possession in there from the game they played against the Raptors, a horrible basketball game in which the Pacers lost by 40 points. But um, you can see Tyrese in that game, like the Raptors want to help off the corner in the way that we said, and they're going to plug that gap. And you know, he, when he jumps, he uses his eye manipulation in tandem with that. He shakes Pascal at the first level and then gets OG Ananobi to rush at O'Shea Brissett in the corner and gets Jalen Smith under the basket. So he has this outside-in passing progression that's not only really entertaining to watch, but is getting you better, more efficient shots under the rim than what they would have been getting from some of their shooters when, you know, Lance Stevenson or somebody's in the corner. But at the same time, like, he's also a guy who needs to, and this is what the season for the Pacers needs to be about, is can he be more of a scoring option? Can he look for his more his own offense more? So when people go and read that piece, you're going to get to the second half of it where I'm going to show that like, you know, there are moments where he has a big and drop coverage and they're still in retreat mode. And the average ending distance of his drives just has to be crazy. If anybody measures that, I would really like to know or if teams have access to that data because so many of his drives end outside the free throw line. And then if he's looking for the longer skip pass, you know, defenders do have a longer time to sit on that. And it's, it's in moments where you can tell that that could be a shot for him. And that's, that's where he's going to need to go. Because last year, if you look at the numbers, there was like 39 players, I think who averaged over five minutes of time of possession. And the only player who had a lower usage rate than Tyrese Halliburton was Kyle Lowry in Miami. So you know, that, and I also looked up another number when I was on with Nate Duncan that, you know, since 2012, there's only been four players who have had a usage rate lower than 20 who have made an all-star team as a, as a backcourt player. So like, if that's where the Pacers want Tyrese to go, he needs to be able to recognize and pick his spots for his own offense and as well as including his teammates. When we think about Tyrese and trying to charge up that offense, the thing that he's shown obviously as the number one for his own scoring is his shooting. But as far as the the classic stuff that you ask from a lead guard in this day and age is like pressure the rim and, you know, get downhill and not downhill to like these spots outside of the paint, but like deep in it. Two feet in the paint is like a, a very classic scouting catch-all. It's like, does he get two feet in the paint? Because, you know, you collapse the defense if you do so. I'm curious... What does a a fully actualized Tyrese look like to you? And and is it an inventive way of getting there? Or is he, do you think he'll be able to, I guess, operate or succeed in the more, mm, I guess, um, prototypical ways that we think of lead guards? I mean, I'm going to bring up the article again. <laughs> but when you look in the article, there are ways that like, you know, he's they're playing the Orlando Magic and there's four players who have at least one foot in the paint. And mm-hmm. I swear to you that if you look at the static screenshot, you're not going to guess that he's going to throw a lob pass in that situation. Who would throw a lob pass when four players are in the lane? And yet his eye manipulation is what it is that he unclogs the paint and is able to get Isaiah Jackson for a dunk. Like that's not his own offense, but he is a very unique player in that type of way. And sometimes he has to rely on having a very low crafty gather at the free throw line. Sometimes he draws fouls that way, but he needs to sacrifice, you know, some of his efficiency for trips to the line. And there's spots where you can definitely see where, you know, if he's winning the hips and shoulder wars a little bit more where he could be finding angles to be getting to the rim. I don't know if that's ever going to be a huge part of his game, but like one thing that I would bring up a lot of times is his numbers against switches and in isolation look really good in part because he usually goes to the step back sidestep to the right three against the switch. And he hits that at a pretty decent clip, but he's very selective. So if he's against a big, like, you know, Evan Mobley or Jaron Jackson or even Joel Embiid in certain circumstances, like he's going to pass out of that. And then you're just relying on the other four players on the floor to be able to do something. And sometimes that works because he commands enough attention as a shooter that you're opening driving lanes and there's more space there. But again, if he's your number one option and the Pacers eventually are in a playoff series at one point in time, you don't really just want to be playing solely through those other four guys. So it becomes a situation of like, what way can he beat a Joel Embiid off the dribble? 
So like they were playing the Sixers in like their second to the last game of the season and nothing came of it. They didn't actually get anything out of the play. But like a lot of times when we think of guards attacking a switch, like go back in the day to when Victor Oladipo played for the Pacers, like he would pass the ball to the guy at the opposite wing. And this is called a boomerang. Like the ball comes back to him. He would back up and then attack that big straight on almost like he's, you know, one of those pullback toy cars with an internal mechanism go at them to get that big off balance. And then he would rise up for the three or he would get them off balance enough that he could get to the rim. Like Tyrese doesn't necessarily have that type of speed, but the way that teams countered Victor was they would start having that big follow him. Like instead of just standing at the, at the three point line and being like, okay, you're going to get us off balance or we're going to have to back up. We're going to follow you out there. And then your pickup points going to be further away from the rim, closer to like what would be a four point line. So like the Rockets did this with Clint Capella, like he would go out there and then he would funnel Victor into the paint and then he would, you know, be in a collapse defense. And I brought this up at the time and applies to Tyrese. Like what you can do in that situation is instead of trying to do it off the dribble, pass the ball to the guard at the opposite wing and then cut in front of that big into the paint and get the boomerang pass on the move in front of the big. So then instead of relying on Tyrese's dribble and his ability to, you know, deal with length, which he can struggle against, he's still getting a shot. He's just doing it in a different way. I think you just have to reimagine some of this. Hopefully that actually translated in your head. I think for someone who that doesn't translate, I think you can think of Steph Curry and the Warriors, how they, it's not driving lanes with the ball in hand. Of course, Steph was capable of doing that, especially with these spread out defenses, but inventive ways to manipulate and, and work off ball just for somebody who's like, how is Halliburton going to achieve these things? Curry isn't the direct comparison, but you can kind of, um, I guess, think like, oh yeah, there are ways to get the ball in advantageous places by just running around and you know being more intentional about how you come off of off ball screens and stuff like that and and designs and stuff like that so that's that's a great point but the other four guys who you know what those which four guys those are in a playoff series in the future what that looks like the rest of the pacers you know what what do you think that team shapes up to be is there an identity that you think that they might have outside of tyrese defensively are there any expectations miles turner what you know what's the deal with that the twin towers are gone but he remains uh, i'm curious what you think about the rest of the team outside of their extremely exciting star guard now first of all bless you for not asking me a question about the twin towers and <laughs> for the 50th podcast of miles versus sabonis thoughts can't tell you how many times i've answered that one but um yeah so the rest of the team like i think for this season um, and this kind of goes back to the Bjorken year. Like you ask about the defensive trajectory and what I'm expecting on that end of the floor. And my answer to that is I honestly do not know because two years ago, like just to be as brief as possible, like under Nate McMillan in the 2020 season, they were a top 10 defense. They played a very conservative scheme under Dan Burke, mostly used drop coverage, stayed home. They forced turnovers, but as a product of the system, not the purpose. So, you know, in part because of what Nate Bjorken wanted to do offensively and in part because when they got into playoff series under Nate McMillan, whether it was against the Celtics or it was against Miami, you know, they came out against the Celtics in a playoff game and were switching from the tip or needed to hedge against Kyrie Irving. And they weren't really prepared to do those things. Like at first there was kind of a shock value of like, whoa, the Pacers are switching. But then as the game went on, it was like, oh, they don't really know how they're, you know, what they're <laughs> doing. And, you know, then they played Miami in the bubble and they kind of didn't make any defensive adjustments, even though it seemed like, you know, you need to be switching those bam Duncan Robinson handoffs. And like, they just weren't doing it. So like something Nate Bjorken would say pretty routinely was like, we don't want to get in a playoff series and be doing something for the first time. So, you know, they went and rifled through all the different zone coverages and all this different stuff. And it didn't really fit the roster. You know, we went into detail on that on the bouncing around podcast. So I won't go too far here, but, you know, it was autopilot and didn't really fit the personnel that they had. So they had a little bit of slippage defensively there. So I think Rick Carlisle this year processed all of that together and thought to himself, okay, like Miles Turner and Sabonis are not the same defensively. We're going to have to run different schemes with both of them. So miles, we're going to keep nearer to the rim for obvious reasons. And Sabonis, you're going to start playing at the level or hedging and deterring that action away from the basket, which 
to Sabonis' credit, he was better at like his hip flexibility and his technique and doing that was better, but they just do not like the Pacers do not have very many stout on ball defenders. So as the season went on, it eventually, by the time the COVID situation happened for most teams in the NBA, like the Pacers were hedging, like they were basically a hedge scheme without having really any wings on the roster. And it got to the point where I wrote a piece like, you know, are you hedging your bets here? Like if you're going to go all in on this and Sabonis is going to be your five, then you're going to need to surround him with, you know, more link to actually accomplish this to the point where the trade deadline happens. Obviously Tyrese comes over. Then afterwards they become a switch team with Isaiah Jackson. And I think that in part that was just because it was easier to regroup and do that on the fly. Like when you're trying to compose a completely basically new basketball team, I think it's a little bit easier to teach switching than the other stuff. Mm -hmm. But now we go into the summer and it's kind of like, you know, is Miles Turner going to be on this team? Is he not going to be on this team? If he is, you know, what type of defense do you really want to play with this group of individuals? I don't quite know the answer to that, but my hope is like when you watch the Toronto Raptors by comparison to the Pacers, that's a team that has a defensive identity. Do they always execute it? Maybe not, but I know what they're trying to accomplish. There was a lot of times last year with the Pacers where I wasn't really sure what are you willing to live with? What are, what are you trying to do here? There was a lot of, you know, them adjusting to their opponents from night to night, which isn't always a bad thing, but they were never really impressing who they are on other teams. And like that coaching staff made a lot of adjustments and I give them credit for that probably more than the last two combined. And they didn't really have the personnel there, but to answer your question, I, I genuinely do not know what to expect when they come out in the first game of the regular season of what they will be doing on defense. I think probably a very common misconception for people is that switching is the high complexity defense. When No, it's the reverse. Right. When that's, when that's not the case is it's also kind of like, uh, good zone you know your idea of zone is like it's the men's league zone where it's like yeah you gotta shoot it you know prove to us you can shoot it otherwise we're just gonna kick back but it's like zone is so much motion when you're doing it well and i'm talking like you know the grade nine coach who's like guys zone you know you gotta be heavy in motion you gotta pay attention move as a unit i'm doing that whole shtick right now but yeah switching is not like wow our defense is getting more complex it's like no switching is really simple uh, it, it simplifies everything. So yeah, I just kind of want to talk about that, but okay. Um, O'Shea Brissett, Matherin, both Canadian, Canadian fellas. I kind of want to ask you, cause I know you did draft work on Matherin and I want to ask you about O'Shea Brissett because you've seen so much of him. The Canadian fellas were on a podcast that is, I can't, I can't remember the analytics, but a lot of Canadians listen to it. Um, an update on the fellas from North of the border, Brissett and then Matherin. Oh, you forgot one. Andrew Nemhard's Canadian too. Oh yeah, Nemhard. Right, right, right. My bad. That's my bad. They're gonna. Yeah. They're gonna. I mean, get the Pacers me. might be the most Canadian basketball team. I don't know. One of them for sure. Okay, so yeah, I mean, just to add one more thing to your switching, like switching is the easier thing to do, but the Pacers were largely a team de- demonstrating how not to switch. But besides, <laughs> besides the point on that, um, Matherin. So yes. So when I was doing draft content, it was funny because we had Zach Milner on as a guest for that podcast. Terrific, terrific uh, person covering college basketball and particularly Arizona where Matherin went to school. And I don't remember if it was on air or off air where I was basically like, this is the most Rick Carlisle player And I'm pretty (laughs) confident that we probably don't need to do any more of these episodes because like when you watched Arizona's offense, there are just, you know, a lot of Euro ball screen continuity, a lot of flow game. And I'm like, they're running identical actions. Like they're running so many NBA like sets and Rick really values a movement shooter. And I was just like, yeah, this is going to be the guy. And then the article I ended up writing was just like comparing Arizona plays to Pacer plays because the Pacers had said like, you know, we want to bring guys in and have them watch film and have them tell us how they fit with us. I'm like, oh, this is going to be the easiest test for him to pass. But I mean, I think that the biggest selling point for Matherin in part is when you look at the partnership between Tyrese and Buddy Heald. So like last year, when you look at the splits, when Tyrese was on the floor with Malcolm Brogdon, which was like only eight games and there is some noisiness here. Like they got outscored by like 17 points per 100 possessions in those eight games. Like there was reason for the Pacers to move on from that in addition to the timeline. When Tyrese was out there with Buddy, which, you know, they have played together going back to Sacramento, obviously, but they very nearly outscored opponents. And that's with the defense being absolutely dreadful. Like the Pacers were the worst defensive team in the NBA after the trade deadline. So like that, that in some respects, I think you can almost describe Mathern as a more athletic Buddy Heald. 
in terms of the types of spacing, what he can do coming off of picks. And also in summer league, like he flashed, looked like his handle was a little bit better. He can score at all three levels. He snaked his dribble into the paint in a way that I wasn't really expecting. He got to a step back too. You know, to have this scoring guard who can play off the ball, play off of Tyrese's manipulation with his eyes and also be a really instinctive cutter. I think all that makes a lot of sense if you're the Pacers and you're looking at how Tyrese already fit with Buddy. And I think that's kind of how they're setting up the roster as a whole to kind of, you know, find out this year, how much is Tyrese really going to be willing to do if we put, you know, Matherin at the two and potentially Duarte or Buddy at the three and Jalen Smith at the four and Miles Turner at the five, like you're pretty much putting the pressure on Tyrese to be putting the primary bend in the defense there. So um, I actually think that that's going to turn out to be a good thing, good, bad, or otherwise. That's That was kind of my my perception as well, although not nearly as in-depth. I was like, okay, I think next to Tyrese, there's probably a, a decent way to fit in. Um, with, with O'Shea Brissett, he was, it was him or Utah Watanabe, and the Raptors went with Utah. He had a better camp, he had better preseason, and that's kind of the way it shook out. And Brissett ends up on the Pacers, and as the Pacers enter flux, Brissett kind of finds his game. I'm curious what you thought about him uh, through, I guess it's what, like a, a season and a half at this point? Yeah, so Shea, I think, is everybody's favorite role player in a lot of ways. Um I think that the main thing holding him back is his finishing. The numbers are not good there on drives or off of cuts. And yet he's like the most instinctual cutter Um, and not just ways to get himself shots off the cuts, like cut assists and ways that open Mm -hmm. stuff for other people. Like he's just very intuitive. Like he's the guy, like he'll recognize the team is switching and he'll go set a flare screen and he'll slip out of it. And then that will relieve the pressure for the ball handler or, you know, he'll cut at the 45 at the exact angle so that the, the shooter in the in the corner will be open and get a shot. I have a question. Okay. Is cut assists like you know you collapse the weak side zone the yeah. the corner shooter's open? Is that cuz that doesn't get talked about in basketball writing hardly ever. Very I've few written about it like I write about it probably four times a year. <laughs> yeah. And but I've written about it too. Not very many people write about it. Do you think that'll be like one of the next things that people start writing about? I feel like it's a very easy way to like be like, hey, there's other things happening in the game and like a really easy way to communicate how how important team play is. And I feel like that's right for like beat writers to be like, this guy's a real team player and like highlight their uh, cut assists and that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? I, I, mean, I wonder it, if that'll be a trend. It should be because it's a skill. Like for sure, mm-hmm. being a 45 cutter is a skill because you can spoil the spacing. Like if you go too early, you're bringing an extra body into the lane. If you If you wait, then, you know, then it's not right either but um but like one way too like it's a it's a way to attack the tag so like when i talked about the euro ball screen continuity offense like if if you're coming off a screen and you have a big popping and the guy cuts at the 45 right when that pass is going to the big popping at the top of the key like you're removing the guy to stunt towards that popper so like there's a lot of utility to that and if you know the proper timing to do it not everybody does. Like I had somebody send me a message. I think it was during the Raptors Sixer series where they're like that piece that you wrote about, you know, the bigs popping and attacking the tags, like shake Milton is the worst at that. <laughs> and, and like, and O'Shea Brissett might be, you know, like the poster boy for being really good at that. Um, and, and also too, like I see him as more of a four than a three for sure. Like there's this massive two game sample size. <laughs> where they played the Celtics and and they played the Celtics and he had like 26 points in the first game. And this was not too long after Tyrese got traded in March and Robert Williams, O'Shea was drawing the Robert Williams assignment because he's the lower usage wing and also got some of the minutes with Daniel Tice at the four. So like those guys are roaming off and, and doing what they do within Boston's defensive scheme. And he was making those threes. He made like six threes and then also was able to take like Daniel Tice off the dribble. Well, then they go up to Boston and Rick Carlisle ended up starting Terry Taylor at the four with Goga and O'Shea at the three because they had other people out. And now O'Shea is being guarded by Jason Tatum and and Jalen Brown the whole game. And suddenly his game looks a lot different in the light. So like you definitely, I think, want to get his minutes at the four because defensively, too, he's kind of like what I would describe as a diet Robert Covington. And that, you know, he's not necessarily a great on-ball perimeter defender. And I don't know that you necessarily want him holding up against post guys either. But he does have a really keen sense for hanging out in tall grass and sliding over and making the right rotations to move sideline to sideline. Perhaps from his background with the Raptors. Like, honestly, that has crossed my mind. 
Like, that could be accurate. Like the nail king is like, you yeah. know, very heady for digs and stuff like that. Yeah. Pinch ins, rotations out. That's that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Nempard, did you like, obviously, it's a lot of people have seen him because he played in big games with Gonzaga. But um, do, do you have any Nemhard thoughts? Yeah, I'm not a person who saw those big games. Um, you can imagine. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I, I can give you I can give you some adjectives. Gritty. Hard nose, great uh, feel, great, great feel. feel, yeah, all, all that um, stuff. Yeah, so with Nemhard, um, I did not expect that the Pacers were going to draft a guard. To be honest, in the second round, because you know at the time they still had Brogdon, they have T.J. McConnell currently on the roster. Obviously, Tyrese they verbalized as the point guard of the future to the point of like saying that they're, you know, want to have Reggie murals of him downtown and compared <laughs> him to Andrew Luck and other people. So I wasn't really expecting another point guard, but when they took him, I tried to watch a lot of Gonzaga film over like two days so that we could do a podcast. And then when I saw him in summer league, like I was a little bit surprised. I like players that do things a little bit more unique or counter to what you expect. So like, you know, when the Pacers are running double drags for Tyrese, it's almost always to get him downhill going to his right. So like when they played the Kings, the Kings know this. They've obviously had Tyrese in their organization and Davian Mitchell comes out and they're doing the weak to switch coverage or the ice to switch so that Tyrese isn't able to get downhill. They're forcing him to his left and he's having to throw it back to the popper. So like Andrew Nemhard caught my eye right away in summer league because he's a guy who wants those screens so that he can dribble off to his left. Like a lot of the action was being run for him to go to his left, even though he isn't left-handed. And then he was like finding Matherin shaking up from that corner. And that's kind of like his favorite pass to make is the one-handed whip with his left to the shake cutter. So that was pretty interesting. Like I thought his ball security needed to be a little bit better. And I think that his shot release probably needs to be adjusted a little bit. He didn't shoot the ball super well, but um, Tyree spoke very highly of him. The Pacers gave him, I think one of the most lucrative second round pick contracts like ever plus he had an option so i think that they're you know they must be thinking that eventually he's going to be taking over into tj mcconnell's spot so my, my that's thank you very much by the way that's very insightful and great information because this is this is how i learn about a lot of players is you listen to somebody who you trust and the thing you you talk about enjoying people who do things uniquely or differently um unique movers is also I love unique movers in the NBA and the Raptors have a few. Who is your favorite watch on the Raptors? Probably Pascal Siakam. Good. Me too. (laughs) Mostly because like, I mean, we were talking about bully drives earlier and the way that Scotty and Pascal both do a bully drive, I feel is so much different between the two of them. Like Scotty's like this physical presence that you don't really expect him to be that overpowering for his size, especially like, you know, watching him do that against Sabonis, not like Sabonis is some stout defender, but that's a strong dude. And he's like, just backing him up. And Pascal is more this guy who like finds all these tiny little advantages Mm -hmm. along the way of his path. And while also being a whirling dervish and also getting to his left, even though like, by now, it feels like this should be on the scouting report and teams should be able to stop him from getting to his left. And yet he still does. That's that's a great point. When when I always thought about, especially like Pascal could beat a guy when they're stepping up, you know, and he'd go the other way on these bully drives. And Scotty would beat a guy because they won't ever get to step up. It's just like this hammer taking them under the basket. And he had like, yeah, it's... It's cool to watch players succeed in different ways. And and Scotty, too, the finishes for Pascal are like these languid, beautiful, long finishes and stuff like that. And Scotty is just like these, you know, Statue of Liberty. His The back of his head is facing the basket. And then suddenly he jumps and he's spinning and he just, gah, push shot that goes in. It's it's absurdities, I think, from both of them. And you know what? I'm uh, I'm excited to see all the different absurdities from both of them this season. But uh, and and I hope you are too. But I think that's a, a decent place to end the podcast. Unless there's anything else you want to address for the audience for either the Raptors or the Pacers. I mean, you're the host. I I don't I don't really. You're the have. talent. We 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 go by like what, what you want to talk about. You know. I mean, I don't I don't really have uh, anything to add here. I think that this is the good final conclusion to our three-part uh, series here. I think people should go back and listen to the other two personally. 
I quite a few people listened to the loving basketball one when I um when I did when I plugged it in the middle of the summer. And additionally, I'm pretty sure I don't know the Spain pick and roll episode of bouncing around was very popular. It it's of I think significant utility. Big thank you to Evan for all the work he did on that just to teach people about it. But I, I'm almost certain of like our interviews or just any regular episode. Yours is the most popular that we did for bouncing around because people know when the stuff is good. I think this cannot be true. I don't, I'm pretty that. sure that's the case. Yeah. This is what you're going to tell all the guests that come on here. Like when you get to the end of all three of these episodes, you're going to be like, you know, you get the most views on these podcasts. I, I don't think anybody else coming on this podcast has been a guest on bouncing around. I don't believe. Oh, wait, no. Bose. Bose is coming on. Bows. What I, I read it as Bose. It's Bowser to Bowser. But anyway, he, he's been on. Um, he obviously was on Bouncing Around, and he'll be on this. But that's the only other person. So. Anyway. I'm also a little bit mad that you have a creative name, and I just have my handle. It, you're not even showing up, though. Like, the it's just, you know... For the record, people follow C two underscore Cooper on on Twitter. By the way, that's I that's wanted Caitlin's my handle. name to be Samson Stan. Sam, <laughs> I was I was gonna actually uh, put mine as Caitlin Hooper, but then I thought, oh, hers won't be showing as well. But yeah, Tyrese valued person I thought was good. So far, I've done Christian colloquialism. I've done uh, Siakam's razor. I've done Mr. Podcast, which Mike Prada gave me a, a bit of. He's like, well, the other one seems so creative. Why did I just get Mr. Podcast? And I was like, ah, you know, I, my apologies. So you can't win them all, I guess. But, well, Evan, did, I don't know if Evan told you this, but Evan thinks that you should start going by Canadian Caitlin and I should start going by <laughs> American Samson. It's uh, it's like the Indiana Raptors uh thing the inverse yep. except for writers that makes I, sense. I feel like you're leveling up though and i'm i'm making you look worse like american samson is really taking a hit there the the exchange rate uh, mimics the money you're of significantly more value so we'll leave it there is is what i'll say but caitlin before we get out of here do you want to plug yourself and if you don't i'll do it so you know it's up to you oh i don't i would much rather hear you plug it you go Okay, uh, I'll just do what I did at the start of the podcast. Basically, is that Caitlin, if you're looking for somebody who has explained basketball in a way that you can understand, in a way that coaches would appreciate, both like overseas and at the NBA level, all that kind of stuff, her work is one of like zero that is available in the public sphere. Uh, she understands Indiana the Pacers in and out. As soon as she locks onto another team to learn about them, she understands that team in and out. Her work is without compare. C2 underscore Cooper. Uh, just type in Caitlin Cooper Pacers on, on Google. I'm sure a bunch of interesting stuff will come up. And just make sure you pay attention to the work that she's doing because uh, she's the best person doing it. And that's why I want her on this podcast. So Caitlin, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It has been an absolute pleasure. Listener, uh, YouTube channel, podcast channel. If you're on YouTube, like the video, I guess. Thanks for kicking around for 50 minutes or so. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys. Hope you enjoyed the listen. Take care and I'll see you.